0: Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Jonathan Spire, a journalist and writing fellow here at the Middle East Forum, join us to discuss why his U.S. visa was canceled and what does it mean? Dr. Spire will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. Now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Jonathan Spire.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Stacy. Well, let me just say first of all, of course, that we're in uh, momentous days, indeed, you in the United States certainly, and uh, uh, with impact on us here in Israel and in the Middle East. So, uh, in the questions and discussion, I'll be very happy, of course, to take questions and, uh, and, and comments regarding those issues. And maybe some people here are familiar with what I write on, which is mainly Syria and Iraq, a little bit of Lebanon, and the broader Middle East strategic issues to do with Iran and and elsewhere, so I'll be certainly happy to take questions on that as well. Nevertheless, I was, uh, I was asked uh, by the Middle East Forum to uh, speak about the uh, very specific and small, for others, not so much for me, but small issue of, uh, of the cancellation of my US visa and uh, perhaps also about some of its larger implications, which I think uh, the episode, as it was, it's now concluded, but which the episode uh, did have. So let me first of all just uh, go through a little bit what actually happened. What happened was that uh, last uh, August, in my home in, uh, in Jerusalem, I got a call from the U.S. from somebody speaking Hebrew, uh, claiming to be or saying that he was from the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, and telling me that my visa had been cancelled. And at that time, I had a ten-year operative ten-year uh, visa to the U.S my israeli passport and uh i said to the person well why can you give me a reason and uh he replied we don't have to give reasons and that was the end of the conversation so to try to get some knowledge of uh, why this had happened i began the process of applying for a new visa assuming that perhaps there'd been some bureaucratic glitch and it would be rapidly sorted out uh, on doing so, I went through the whole process, I was invited in for a meeting, I came to the meeting, and another very polite uh, clerk, this time uh, an Arab guy speaking English at the embassy, said, sorry, sir, no visa for you today, and gave me a little piece of paper, which is one of those kind of form pieces of paper with a bunch of little boxes with writing next to it, and a tick next to the particular box that you have been found to, uh, to apply to, You've been, that, that's been found to apply to you as the applicant and the box that i had was that the visa has been denied uh, on the grounds that the applicant is a person who has been involved in terrorism or was connected to a terrorist organization well i'm sure you can uh, imagine that left me somewhat flawed i think the expression is somewhat in shock and i had a bunch of other uh, stuff to do that day so i just put it out of my mind until i got home in the evening and then i began to call friends and colleagues and ask what this could possibly be about. Well, according to the form, uh, this is not uh, a barring or a decision which is subject to appeal. In other words, as a non-citizen of the U.S., once the United States decides that, that's pretty much that. You don't have uh, the right to appeal it, and you're basically banned from visiting the United States for the rest of your, your life. That's it. Um, obviously, I was very uh, upset about that. Also, because professionally speaking, I do a lot of work in D.C. and a lot of contacts in D.C. Also, from a personal level, I have relatives in the U.S., many good friends. It's a country of which I'm deeply fond and profoundly attached. And in a funny way, also, I think, uh, you know, like many here in Israel, I've kind of come to regard the United States as kind of home from home, you know, a a country to which the country to which I'm loyal, Israel, you know, is profoundly attached on a very deep level. So it was very strange. Situation. In any case, I contacted some friends from various Jewish organizations and, I, I was, and they said they'd try to help and they got to work, I guess, quietly trying to help. Uh, in any case, then about a month ago, I realized that nothing had happened. We were nearly a year on. Uh, people who I'd written to hadn't responded. So I thought to myself, enough is enough. I may as well go public with this at this point. I've got nothing to lose. So I didn't go public with it in a huge way, I just wrote a blog post, and as a result of the blog post, the Times of Israel got in contact and said, would you like to write something for the Times of Israel? And then the paper which I write for sometimes in the US, the Wall Street Journal, got in contact and said, look, would you like to write an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal about what had happened? I said, yes, I would, and I did. And as a result of that, and I think as a result of some representations made by friends and senior colleagues, I think also to the United States uh, Ambassador David Friedman and maybe two others also on the the United States side. Uh, What happened was that while all that was going on, then one day I got another call very similar to the first one last August, this time the guy was speaking English, and he said, I'm just calling to tell you that your visa application has been completed and you're welcome to come in and get the visa not that you have to do a new application, not that we've decided for grounds A, B or C. Just It's ready and you can come and get it. Well, that was, of course, fantastic news. So as soon as I could, the following uh, Monday, I went to get the visa and I got the visa. And there we are. The whole thing was thus concluded. Um, That's the bare bones of the story. The implications, however, I think are potentially uh, more serious than just the ability or inability of one journalist researcher to visit the U.S. uh, or not. Uh, And the reason for that is because I thought about my activities, I thought about who I speak to, who I deal with. I'm somebody who writes about, among other things, about terrorist and paramilitary activity. During the Syrian war, I covered it from all sides, from the regime side, the rebel side, Kurdish side. I interviewed many people at that time, who I, not only who I think are regarded as terrorists, but also who I personally regard as terrorists. That's to say, I interviewed, I sat in apartments in southern Turkey interviewing ISIS members. I traveled with the Qtaib Hezbollah organization in Western Iraq and Anbar province, and they were fighting ISIS in the summer of 2015. I spent time with Lebanese Hezbollah people in Damascus uh, during my reporting on the regime side in Syria, and so on and so forth. But my own view, at least, and I don't have concrete proof for this, but I think it's uh, uh, very likely, is that the specific organization which I think led to my banning was the organization called the Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK, which, is, as you, people probably know, is a Kurdish nationalist organization and it is engaged in a long insurgency against Turkey. It's been on that insurgency since 1984. Many thousands of people have died on both sides. There's been atrocities undoubtedly committed on both sides too. And the PKK is a registered terrorist organization by both the US and Europe. Now, I'm by no means a supporter of the PKK, but I have spent time with them on a similar basis to the time I spent with other organizations like the ones I mentioned, uh, interviewing them, speaking to them, developing contacts, building contacts with the purpose of uh, you know, gathering information do my job as effectively as i can but i think that because of also my writing and because my writing often when appropriate has expressed support and sympathy to kurdish national aspirations and also because i think that the pkk's enemy the republic of turkey and the government of turkey is the only one which is against one or another or rather which is uh, you know which is relevant which would have had sufficient sway to maybe impact on American government to carry out a decision of this kind. That's to say, you know, I'm sure of my list of probable enemies, so to speak. I'm sure that Lebanese Hezbollah, if they could, would like to harm my work. I even know for a fact that they that they would. Um, but Lebanese Hezbollah don't have people in Washington D.C. who can who can get those decisions made. You know, I have no doubt whatsoever that ISIS, you know, uh, would would not see me as somebody who they'd like to continue with their war. Again, I'm not the first item on the agenda for any of these people, but I certainly am not ashamed to say that I'm their enemy. None of them, and not the Assad regime, and not Hamas, you know, have the clout in D.C. to get a person banned. But the only ones that could, and therefore that I suspect did, uh, are the government of the Republic of Turkey, as I say, the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Now, this has potentially, if, if I'm correct in that assumption, and I think I'm confident in it, this has uh, implications beyond that of just my particular case. Erdogan, uh, among many other things, is the destroyer of the free media. Uh, Turkey, Turkey jails more journalists than any other uh, Western country. I think they're not quite leading the world, but they're up there in the top two or three countries of jailers of journalists. Everyone understands the power of the free media, the power of critical voices, and he does his very best to shut them down in Turkey. And as a result, there is no free media in Turkey anymore, and the best of Turkey's journalists are all in exile in Sweden, London, Brussels, Paris, uh, far from home. Everyone understands the power of critical analysis, and he does his best to silence it. And uh, I personally suspect that the uh, explanation behind what, to, what happened to me is that, unfortunately, the servants of the uh, current Turkish government uh, appear to be interested in extending their activities against the practice of free journalism and analysis uh, outside only of the borders of Turkey and into the territory of uh, officially allied states, such as the United States, as I say they're operating against us Uh, not only in Turkey itself, but also using their influence in other countries. And that's a a dangerous uh, development, and I think it leads me to the concluding point, which is maybe the most important point that I want to make, which is, again, if I'm correct in this uh, uh, assumption as to who was responsible for bringing about this banning, and as I said, I don't think there's any other reasonable or plausible explanation for it happening. If I'm correct in that, then this is another item Uh, another piece in the jigsaw, a piece in the picture, so to speak, of that quite worrying picture, which identifies the current government in Turkey uh, as uh, a government operating far outside of the acceptable norms that we would expect and should be able to expect from a country that is after all a NATO member country, is after all ostensibly an ally of the United States and the broader Uh, Western Alliance, and also a country which still, uh, officially speaking, is governed by a democratic and electoral system. Put all that together and think about a country that has those links, those alliances, that image and which is nevertheless engaged both on its own soil, and I think we can surmise also now beyond the Turkish soil, is engaged in an attempt to harass and silence uh, voices which, certainly in my case and that of many others, are in no way hostile to Turkey. I personally have great affection for Turkey as a country, but which are deeply critical on a factually based, uh, from, a, from a factually based direction, of the current regime in Turkey and of Turkey's regional and international behaviour. And that's something which I think we all should be concerned about. Um, let me just conclude by saying, whilst I obviously am not a U.S. citizen, I don't. Express any preference, hence, don't express any preference regarding uh, the results of the elections or the, uh, the, uh, the question of who will be president after January. Um, from my own personal point of view, I can say just because I think I have much better personal contacts within the current administration when compared to what may be the next one, um, I'm very lucky that I did it when I did it because I suspect, you know, have not, had I waited six months, there'll be another bunch of people there in the White House, it might have been impossible, and then I would have ended up in the situation which I've since discovered a whole bunch of other journalists and researchers are, where they just get a notice like this, and there's nothing they can really do about it, and they just have to accept they're never going to be able to come to the United States or again. Now, that's a personal tragedy you know, for, for each of them, but I think it's also a political tragedy, because if it means that Turkey, the current regime of Turkey, gets to make sure that American American audiences don't get to hear the accounts and the analyses and the experiences of people who know that regime well and harm it's doing. That's a political loss also for, uh, for the American discussion in a broader sense. There's a need for much, much more discussion about what Erdogan is doing and what that means and what that represents, not less in that regard. You know, the more we can, I would say, act against these kind of attempts at silencing, slash harassment. Uh, so my story happy ending, but there's still, you know, a huge amount to be done. Um, on that, I'll I'll leave it there, and I'll be very happy to take questions. As I say, about this issue about Turkey, but also if people wish to also about broader stuff that I work on.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. First question in is: Do you think that President Trump's relationship with President Erdogan? enable Turkey to intervene in your visa matter? And do you think it'll, uh, Biden will, will limit that power of Erdogan in the US?
1: I mean, with regard to President Trump's relationship with Erdogan to do with my case, I, I really don't know, and I wouldn't wish to speculate. But I think it is a fair question because it is undoubtedly the case that while uh, the Trump administration has done, it's least in my estimation, you know, has done a, a great deal of positive stuff with regard to the Middle East, specifically Uh, with regard to its stances towards Iran, the maximum pressure policy, strategy, the leaving of the JCPOA, also with regard to Israel, the moving the capital to Jerusalem, colonized the rest of it. Yeah, there was kind of a a worrying gap, you know, in all that, I think I can say with confidence, and that was the relationship to Turkey. And frankly, uh, I never quite had felt an adequate explanation for this. Why was it? the president seemed to be quite so soft and tolerant towards this, you know, authoritarian Islamist leader. And especially when the result of that had, you know, was so grave. For example, the, the military incursion into northeastern Syria in uh, October and November of last year, which I personally covered from the Kurdish side in northeast Syria, hundreds of thousands of people leaving their homes, you know, a series of murders of civilian Kurdish officials dreadful so, yeah, I think that was a, a gap in the generally positive record of the Trump administration vis-a-vis the Middle East. And I have to say what's going to be not partisan in any way, and I, and I share, I think, some of the concerns that have been expressed within some of, uh, of uh, Joe Biden's uh, positions on the Middle East with regard, for example, to the desire to go back to an agreement with Iran with regard, we're hearing, to the P.L.O. office in Washington, and uh, recommence financial aid to the uh, P.A. Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, with all those concerns, the fact is that Biden's record with regard to Turkey, at least on a, on the verbal level, the commitment level, is good. Biden is deeply critical of Erdogan. Biden is, has expressed himself as deeply sympathetic to to Kurdish causes. Uh, and therefore, yeah, if it turns out that Biden, you know, takes office and so on in January. I think one of the things we will be looking at closely and hoping for will be Erdogan will no longer be able to get away with some of the stuff which unfortunately he has been able to get away with in Syria and elsewhere, uh, whether my case is part of that or not, I don't know, but certainly in Syria and elsewhere, the that will end and we'll, I we'll be facing a tougher response if you try it.
0: Thank you. Um, is the PKK designated a terrorist group as an expression of internal Turkish policy, as opposed to objective reality? Uh,
1: I think so. Yes, I think so. Yes, and I think there is there are increasing voices, uh, both in Europe, and in the United States, uh, along those lines. And I draw people's if people are interested in this, I would draw people's attention to uh, the writings of Michael Rubin, for example, in Washington D.C., who, who's written quite extensively about this. The situation is not. Uh, black and white, so to speak, it's not simple because I think when the PKK was designated as a terrorist organization in the uh, 1980s, arguably then, you could find you know, real evidence in support of the, the designation that said there had been, without any question, a deliberate attacks by the PKK in the early stages of its insurgency on civilians, both in the Kurdish areas, people who regarded as collaborators with the Turkish authorities, and indeed in Turkish majority, parts of Turkey as part of their insurgency. I do wish to say that if the issue is you know, deliberate attacks on civilians, the Turkish military uh, you know, was equally guilty, I would say, but nevertheless, I think there, w- there was a sound case for the designation that was made um, some years ago, obviously. And I think that the PKK, like another organisation, has gone through you know, a process of maturing, a process of transformation, and indeed up to five years ago, process in my estimation was deliberately torpedoed by President Erdogan. Up to five years ago a very promised peace process was underway between the PKK and Turkish authorities. Be that as may, and there is an insurgency underway again now, um, that insurgency is conducted in my view overwhelmingly uh, in its entirety against uh, almost in its entirety against Turkish security forces it's an insurgency. One can argue uh, whether it's justified or not. My view is that on balance, it probably is among those insurgencies that should be justified. But certainly, I don't think the PKK fits the bill anymore for regardless of terrorist organization on the lines of Al Qaeda and the others who we know to deserve to be on that list. And therefore, yes, the reason I think why it stays on that list is politics. It's because Turkey is a powerful country. It has a power, of economy, it has a power of economic interest and it's very, very concerned that PKK should stay on that list. And therefore, countries tend to act according to their own interests and uh, follow suit on those lines. I'll give you an example. You know, as probably problem, the PKK associated white YPG was in Syria were the main fighting force on the ground aligned with American and allied air power in the war against ISIS over the last half decade. you probably know, many young people from the United States, from Britain, from Germany, from France, went to volunteer with the YPG. Young men and young women also wanted to fight against ISIS and the dreadful uh, system that they were creating in Syria. Now, in the States, and I think it's to the credit of the American system, those people who survived that experience came back and had been kind of left alone. But in some other countries, and the UK is one of them, Uh, people have actually been prosecuted. So it is the the literally, frankly, ludicrous situation in which people went and volunteered to fight with a force that was fighting alongside NATO air power with the support of Western governments. Then they found themselves returning to their home country having undertaken that quite right back, and they found themselves potentially facing trial as terrorists because of the YPG's links to the PKK. That's a ridiculous situation. It makes no sense from a legal point of view whatsoever. Nobody's made a coherent case that these young people constitute a threat to the British or European public when they come back, but they face those kind of uh, uh, accusations. That, to me, more than any other single fact, shows us the extent to which the terrorist designation of the PKK is more to do with politics and the interests of powerful states than it is to do with anything substantive with regard to the nature or or, uh, or activities of that organisation.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, Your mic was cutting out a little bit there. I don't know if there's a plug you can
1: Uh, I'm not sure.
0: It sounds like it's gotten better now. Um, So our next question is, how many other journalists, if any, are you aware of who, like you, deduce that they've been denied visas as a result of Turkish government intervention?
1: Uh, I'm aware of two others. One of whom was a journalist and one of whom was a humanitarian worker, both of whom, much more than me, had I would say more identifiably pro PKK loyalties. They weren't, they're not members of the organization, they're both Westerners. One of them is a Canadian, one of them is an Irish uh, citizen. But and and the reason I know about it is because they both contacted me when I wrote up my piece about it and said, Hey, join, welcome to the club. We have exactly the same situation. So those are the two that I know of um, and I suspect there are probably more. Often I think people don't talk about it openly because they just feel upset or don't want to, don't feel it would help, and for them they can do. But certainly those two people I'm aware of, as I said, those were people who had a much closer involvement, I would say, with PKK-related circles than I did, but neither of those individuals uh, is a a militant or member of that organisation.
0: So a question in is uh, regarding Netanyahu congratulating Biden on his victory, even though the election has not officially been called. Is that a risky move?
1: I don't think it's, it's risky because, you know, Netanyahu was, was not the, the first to kind of rush and, and, and call him up. There was no sense of great glee. I think Netanyahu was following the lead made by many other Western leaders in making that call, whether he was right or wrong to do so is another. When he was following that, I don't think that President Trump, you know, I I tend to think President Trump's uh, actions towards Israel, contrary to what some people estimate, I tend to think President Trump's actions towards Israel stem from his own convictions rather than from, I don't know, a desire to please uh, his evangelical base or because Netanyahu was being, you know, successfully obsequious towards him to an extent that Trump felt the desire to reciprocate. I don't think it's any of that. I think that Trump had his own convictions regarding Israel. And that would be the lodestar by which he would operate. So I don't think there's any, uh, you know, sense of retribution or something in the next few months. I don't think so. And by the way, I also don't think that, that Joe, I, I very much doubt, you know, that Joe Biden is sitting there kind of measuring who, who called him and how long did it take. And oh in that case, you know, if MBS from Saudi Arabia is taken too long, boy, if I get into that White House, it'll be, you know, there'll be held to pay for MBS. No, I don't think so. I think that People are maybe getting a little bit carried away with the, the media moment, you know, with all this stuff. I don't think it's that significant ultimately. Oh,
0: understood. And what is the current status of Kurdistan and Syria?
1: Well, it's a good question. Look, Kurdistan and Syria, you know, contrary to what many people thought was going to happen when when Trump announced the withdrawal of troops in uh, October, Kurdistan and Syria is still very much intact. That's to say the... Uh, or well, nowadays, they call them the Autonomous Administration of Northeast Syria. You know, that entity, controlled by the uh, Kurdish dominated SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, still controls around 30% of the entire territory of Syria. Essentially, it controls Syria east of the Euphrates River. Uh, that contains most of Syria's oil resources. It contains much of Syria's best agricultural land. Uh, and as of now, there's no sign of that changing anytime soon. It's a fact that when the Turks came pushing in in October and November last year, the Kurds decided to allow the regime forces to cross the Euphrates River to help them defend from the sort of rampaging South Turkish army. But con- and I was there at that time and I covered it as a reporter and con- contrary to what many of us thought, myself included, the regime army did not then get permission to begin to put up roadblocks and establish governance. They came in, they were permitted to come in just to do that job of standing against the Turks. And that was that. The Kurdish dominated administration has survived. There's still around 500 United States service personnel in that area with Bradley fighting vehicles and other uh, equipment. And they're a tripwire to anybody who's thinking of coming in. You know, they're not there just for the, by themselves. They can call in US air power also all the might of u.s forces just close by so they keep that entity in existence and the bottom line is that for as long as those u.s forces are there with the implicit guarantee that they give and that they bring the kurdish dominated entity of northeast syria will survive and my sense at least is that this is not really a partisan issue from the u.s point of view that's to say whether it is president trump or Joe Biden, who, you know, take, who who will be in the White House in, for the next few years, I don't think either of them really is planning anytime soon any major changes. That was the message given by Jim Jeffrey, the uh, special envoy to Syria, who's just in the process of resigning now, the special U.S. envoy. That's what he said. You know, he was saying, well, no real changes are expected, regardless of what happens with governance uh, in the period ahead. So for the bottom line is for as long as the U.S. guarantee is there, the de facto Kurdistan in Syria will remain. And as of now, there are no reasons to assume that that situation is going to change in the imminent future.
0: While we're on the Kurds, uh, what is the future of the Kurd area in Iraq? Uh, will it be autonomous?
1: Uh, it will be uh, autonomous, I think. I don't think anybody is, uh, you know, is thinking anything other than that. But as you know, as people probably know, just three years ago there were real hopes on the part of Iraqi Kurdistan which of course is a much more solid and uh, and veteran entity than is the relatively new and fledgling Syrian Kurdistan there were real hopes in September 2017 that Iraqi Kurdistan could move towards full independence and they had an independence referendum and more than 90 percent of the participants voted for independence in a you know, properly run internationally monitored referendum and then they were prevented uh, purely by force, by pro-Iran militias working together with the Iraqi armed forces. The Iraqi Kurds were prevented from realizing their right to independence by the use of force. And unfortunately, they lost ground. They lost the oil-rich city of Kilkuk, They lost some other significant areas, but they survived. So as of now, they are autonomous. Their autonomy is not under threat. But any chances, which, which was their great dream, you know, to move towards independence, I'm afraid have been... Uh, Have been frustrated by primarily the actions of the Iranians and their their allies. The other thing to remember is that the Iraqi Kurdish entity is quite dependent on Turkey. It's a landlocked entity, and and it's rich in uh, energy resources, and it relies on the Turks to pipeline their uh, oil and gas out to get it out to the Mediterranean and then to international markets. So they're quite influenced by and dependent on the Turks as well, and that impacts on internal Kurdish politics between the Iraqi Kurds, unfortunately, and the PKK and the Syrian Kurds, who find themselves very much on the other side of the fence uh, in terms of that power uh, reality.
0: All right, well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Spire, for speaking with us today.
1: Thanks very much, guys. See you soon.
0: Of course. uh, For our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our weekly update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day.